Next Sunday, we will be marking the sanctity of human life. I wanted to let you know that. Some churches are uh, marking that today. Next Sunday is actually closer to the day, January 22nd. So if you can be here, I'd encourage you to. The following week, January 31st, we're going to move right into our next sermon series on the Minor Prophets. My working title for that series is The Major Messages of the Minor Prophets. Would you let me know this week if that title is corny? (laughs) I know my family will. We have a lot to work through in these verses today in a short amount of time, so I'm going to get straight to praying. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we listen to your word this morning, we ask that you would fill our minds with your truth, that you would fill our hearts with affection for you and others, and that you would move our wills to please and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles that you find in the seat back in front of you, you can find today's text on page 905. I have two objectives in today's sermon. Number one, I would like uh, to help us see the flow of this text, and so we will read through it. We'll read through each of its parts. There's four of them, four paragraphs, and I hope to help you see how they're all connected. And then number two, we're going to go back and look more closely at the example and the exhortation. There is an example to follow here, and there is an exhortation. But first, let's begin by considering the flow of this text. We want to understand what is Paul actually saying to the Corinthians. We want to put ourselves in their shoes and imagine that we are the original recipients of this letter, and we want to know what is Paul saying to the Corinthians. So we'll begin with the first of our paragraphs. It's verses 10 and 11, where Paul brings up Timothy. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So the gist here is, Timothy is on his way to you, go easy on him. We could read other parts of the New Testament and we would find out that Timothy was a godly man. Paul describes Timothy in the book of Philippians chapter 2. He was a godly man, but he was also young, very young. And we can infer from Paul's letters to him in 1 and 2 Timothy that he was also timid and he was not in great health. So he's a godly man, but he's very young, 
He was timid, and he's not in great health, which means he probably had a hard time standing up for himself. Now combine that with the strong personalities in Corinth and their hostility toward Paul, and there is some potential trouble. So Paul admonishes them, because Paul won't be there, he admonishes them to treat Timothy well. Specifically, look with me, he calls the Corinthians in verse 11 to put him at ease. He's going to show up, put him at ease. In other words, don't greet him with a bunch of complaints and conflict. Put him at ease. Further, let no one despise him. So they should actually defend him. They should stick up for him. And then finally, help him on his way in peace, which basically means to bless him. He's going to be with you for a while and then help him on his way in peace. When he leaves, send him off with spiritual and material and emotional support. Okay, next, Paul moves on to Apollos. And he begins with this familiar phrase, now concerning, which most likely means that the Corinthians had written Paul a letter asking about Apollos. Whenever you see that phrase, now concerning, Paul is referring to something that the Corinthians had written Paul about. So they wrote and asked him, hey, when are we going to see Apollos? We'll understand why in a minute. Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So a little background. The Corinthians loved Apollos. They were like an Apollos fan club. The Corinthians, they prized public speaking. And when it came to public speaking, you couldn't do much better than Apollos. In fact, he was probably the most gifted preacher in the early church. Even Paul speaks of him that way and points out what a gifted teacher and preacher he was. But not only did the Corinthians love Apollos. It's clear as you read through the letter, 1 Corinthians, it's clear that some of them actually preferred Apollos to Paul. You remember they had broken up into different factions, and some were saying, Apollos is my guy, Paul is my guy. They even tried, it seems, to pit Paul and Apollos against one another. So keep that in mind as you're reading what Paul says in verse 12. Because in light of that, what Paul does here, after delivering this bad news to them that Apollos was not going to be visiting, he makes this crucial clarification. He didn't tell Apollos not to come. You see how that could look. Oh, Apollos isn't coming because some of us prefer Apollos over you. And Paul, you're jealous of Apollos, and so you're not letting him come visit us 
until you can get here first or you both can come together. Well, he heads that off, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He makes a clarification. On the contrary, what did Paul do? He strongly urged Apollos to go and visit. This wasn't Apollos's, it wasn't Paul, excuse me, it wasn't his decision. This was all Apollos. It was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity, which literally means that he will come when the time is right. So it was his decision. And his unwillingness to visit is probably rooted in his concern that showing up without Paul, it might only increase the division and the factions that were in Corinth. So that's Timothy, that first paragraph, and Apollos, the second paragraph, which brings us to this sort of abrupt instruction in verse 13. I don't know if any of you felt that way when you read verse 13. I say abrupt because it seems to come out of nowhere when you're first reading this. I mean, if you were to remove this verse, the logic of the text would basically be unaffected. It almost looks like someone else just popped it in there. It's abrupt. But of course, it is connected. And I think this is the connection. After Paul gives this bad news in verse 12, he anticipates that the Corinthians are going to be tempted to sin. It was a big deal to them that Apollos came and visit. And he expected that some of the Corinthians were going to be upset. They were going to be angry. They were going to be tempted to be petty or to act cowardly, or even spiteful. And so Paul gives this command. Verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We'll come back to that exhortation. And then finally, here's our last paragraph where Paul returns to remarks about certain Christians, verses 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatos and Achaicos because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So now he's covered Timothy, Apollos, Stephanos, Fortunatos, and Achaicos. And these are all good and godly men, aren't they? Paul doesn't always have 
good things to say about people. And he often writes it down. Sometimes he warns people in these churches to stay away from certain people, to watch out for them. That's not the case here. These are good and godly men. And he is telling the Corinthians that they need to treat these men well. Put them at ease. Let no one despise them. Help them. Be subject to them and give recognition to them. So that wraps up the first part of the sermon. That is the flow of the text. I hope you see what Paul is basically saying and how it all fits together. So let's go back now. Let's slow down a little bit and let's consider the example that is in these verses and then the exhortation. We've answered the question, what is Paul saying to the Corinthians? And now we're looking to apply this and answer the question, what is Paul saying to us? Which are the two questions you should always think when you read the Bible or when you hear a sermon? What was this saying to them and what is this saying to me? To understand and to apply. So let's begin. Let's look at the example here to follow. If you look closely, Paul draws attention to the character of these men. He draws attention to their character. And I want us to see what specifically Paul commends in these men. What does he applaud? What does he admire? What does he praise in these men? Well, let's go back to Timothy. Verse 10. See if you can see it. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. You see it? Timothy, Paul says, he should be treated well. Elsewhere in other letters, he says he should be looked up to, this young man. Treat him well. Look up to him. Why? It's not because Paul favors him. It's not because of Timothy's accomplishments. Paul doesn't say you should treat him well because he's rich. Or he is influential. It's pretty simple. It is because he's working hard. He's working. Not just working hard. What is he working hard doing? He is doing the work of the Lord. That's a phrase Paul uses. We looked at it weeks ago in chapter 15. The work of the Lord. That is work that you do for Christ's sake. It is work that you do for the glory of God. And here's your goal, Christian, that all the work you do would ultimately be for Christ's sake. That you would be able 
to take every bit of work you do and you could connect it to pleasing God, to glorifying God, to honoring God, that it would be work of the Lord, that it would be work for Christ's sake. So that's what he commends in Timothy. And then look down at verses 15 through 18. What about these men in the last paragraph? I'm not going to say their names again because I barely made it through twice. I mean, I had to punch the little microphone button on my Bible software like 12 times. And none of you even looked impressed when I said it today. (laughs) Verse 15. This is one thing Paul says about him. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They've devoted themselves to serving God's people. It's what they're known for. He says this in verse 16. They are fellow workers and laborers. Do you hear the common theme? Looking back at verse 10 and 11 in Timothy, verses 15 and 18, these three men, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's not their talents. It's not their gifts. It is not their abilities. It is not their sense of humor. It's not their accomplishments. It's not their influence. It is their faithfulness. These men, just like Timothy, they are, how are they described? They are workers and they are laborers who had devoted themselves to serving God's people. This is how we want to be known as Christians. Of all the things that you want to be, of all the the things that you want to be known as. If you, and I don't know if you do, you think about a legacy. How would people remember you? What would your children or grandchildren or friends or church members say about you? This should be at the top of the list. But is it? Of all the things that you want to aspire to, of all the things that you want to be known for in this life, is it to be a worker a laborer, someone who devoted themselves to serving God's people. Whatever you did, the way you thought and the way you prayed and the way you interacted and the way you did your job and the way you spent time in recreation, the way you spent time with your family, whatever it is, are you known as someone who works and labors for God? That word laborer, that word laborer, it is the same exact word that is used in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. Let me read you that verse. Simon answered, this is a disciple, and he's answering Jesus, and he said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. You remember the story? Long night of fishing. No fish. Discouraged 
frustrated. And Jesus says, why don't you drop the net one more time? And their eyes roll. (laughs) And this was Simon's response. We toiled all night. That's the word. We toiled all night. We labored. Does this sound glamorous to you? Does that get a lot of attention? Does that sound like something extraordinary and special? Does that sound like the quality of someone that we should raise up and look to and an example we should follow? I hope so. They toiled all night. They worked their tails off fishing and nothing even seemed to come of it. That is how Paul describes these men. They're workers. They are laborers. So that is what Paul commends in these men. It's not flashy. It may not get the attention of the world, but it gets the attention of God. It's what matters. God looks for the one who will serve him. I was reminded this week of the story of Samuel and his anointing of David to be king. It's a good illustration of what God looks for versus what we look for in people, in leaders, in examples that we might follow. Samuel wants a king. God says, okay, go to this town, this farm where Jesse is, and you're going to find your king there. I'll, I'll show him to you. It's not working out so well with Saul. We've got someone else in mind. And so he sends him there. And Samuel goes to Jesse, says, bring your boys out. And they all come out and stand in front of him. And do you remember who Samuel sees, who he's impressed by? Eliab, tall, dark, handsome, strong, probably speaks well. It's like, this guy's money. This is it. This has got to be the one. It's so obvious. It's so clear. He's looking at the other brothers, not so much. But he sees this guy, thinks that's the one. What does God tell him? Wrong. Wrong. This is what God said. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's not the outside, but the inside. Samuel says, you got any other boys? Because none of these are him. Well, there's David. I mean, he's out, he's out watching the sheep. You want me to bring him in? He brings him in. Samuel looks at him. Samuel says, God? And you remember God's reply. Arise and anoint him king, for this is he. Not what you'd expect. This is what God looks for. It's, of course, the example of Jesus. Matthew 20, 26 through 28, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You need to be a worker, 
a laborer. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as, who's the ultimate example? The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he is our example. So what should be our response to examples like this in the Bible and in our families and in our churches? Should we just admire them? Of course not. We should imitate them. We should follow their example. We should be imitators of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he even says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Look and see what it is that I'm doing that is the work of the Lord, not my sin, of course, but what it is that I'm doing right and imitate that and follow that example. Paul says it explicitly in verse 16. We should be subject to men like this. And in verse 18, we should give these kinds of men recognition. In other words, look up to these people. Follow them. They're here for your sake. Listen to them. Follow their example. Look to them as leaders. By God's grace, you all have examples in this book. You have men and women in this book whose example you can follow. By God's grace, you have men and women in this church whose examples you can follow. If you'd get to know them, if you'd talk with them, if you'd ask them questions, if you'd watch them, you'd find, as I do every week, that you're humbled. You're humbled by their example. And often you're most humbled at the quiet work and labor that is done week in and week out for God's glory and not their own. We are to follow these examples. So that's the first thing we wanted to go back and see. And now second and finally, there is an exhortation to follow. Not just an example, but an actual exhortation. I promised we'd go back and take a closer look so, verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Five exhortations. Five of them, and the first four, are all associated with warfare. If you were in battle these four qualities would be absolutely essential for survival and victory. Now, Paul, for the Corinthians and for us, he does not have as much a material war in mind, but an immaterial battle, a battle against Satan, a battle against sin, a battle against the world. Let me read you a few scriptures that illustrate this battle. Because sometimes, it's important to read these, because sometimes comfortable Christians 
Forget we're in the middle of a war zone. But listen to how the Bible speaks. Romans 7, 23. Paul, looking internally, says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's an internal battle and war against sin. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There it is again. This warfare language. Elsewhere, this world is filled with temptation. This world is filled with enemies of Christ. It is a battle. 1 Peter 5.8, what's behind all of this? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we're called in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God. And Paul says to Timothy, your life is going to be a fight. And at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, Paul looks back and said, my life was a fight. So the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a war. And though you may not feel that in a material sense, in a physical sense yet, it is absolutely an immaterial reality. And so this exhortation is extremely important for us. So let's look at them. Number one, be watchful. Think of battle. It simply means be awake. Be alert. Be on guard. Don't be lazy. Don't think too highly of yourself and your ability to overcome sin. Don't fall into temptation. Your devil is like a prowling lion who wants to devour you. Don't fall asleep. Be watchful. Number two, stand firm in the faith. That means stand your ground. And when there is temptation, when there is struggle, whether it's within or without, we want to run. We want to hide. We want to avoid trouble. And there's usually a thousand different ways that we could. And sometimes no one would even know that we did it. And so Paul says, you need to stand firm in the faith. You need to hold your ground. This reminded me of a scene from one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. There's a battle scene in that movie where the Scots and the Irishmen 
are preparing for battle against the British, and they've formed a line in this field. And the British send their cavalry, which means they send hundreds of 2,000-pound horses with men and spears in their direction. And these guys all have homemade weapons. And they form this line on the battlefield. And the horses are sent. And you hear their leader say, Hold. 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 The cavalry gets closer and closer and closer. It would be terrifying. You're facing certain death. It'd be so easy just to stand up, turn the other way, and run. But Paul tells us, hold the line. Stand firm in your faith. Number three, Act like men. Uh oh. <laughs> Act like men. Really? Is that a misprint? Does he mean act like humans? <laughs> He's writing this to men and women, isn't he? This letter is not written to the men at Corinth. So, is he also calling women to act like men? Yes. I should just stop right there and move on. That phrase, act like men, it is the same exact phrase that you find all over the place in the Old Testament, and it is this, be strong and courageous. 2 Samuel 10, 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous. Or Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. We have this Greek phrase here. It's the same thing you find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's translated, be strong and courageous. In the New Testament, Paul translates it as act like men. Because in the Old Testament, typically, like in Deuteronomy 31, when God was saying, be strong and courageous, the context was men who were going to war. They were going into battle. In the Old Testament, the context was physical war. And the men, because women would not and should not go to war, the men were called by God to put themselves in harm's way, which would require being strong and courageous. God was sending them 
into battles where they were severely outnumbered and outmatched. There was nothing in and of themselves they could depend on. And so God would tell them, don't back down. Be strong and courageous. Our context is not a physical war, but it is a spiritual war. And it will require all of us, men, women, and children, to act like men going to war. That is, we've got to be strong and courageous. We need to be strong and courageous as if we were going to war because, Christian, you are. We're outnumbered in and of ourselves. We're outmatched. But not with God on our side. We are, one of the ways the Bible puts it, more than conquerors. And so we're called to be strong and courageous, to act like men. Number four, be strong. Be strong. And that actually means to be physically and mentally strong beyond average. Isn't that a great way to put it? Be physically and mentally strong beyond the average and beyond the expectation. You live in a day where the average is pretty low and the expectation is even lower. We're to exceed that. This is the kind of strength that will require. And number five, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. All the holding your position, all the fighting, all the conflict, all the war, all the battle, all those decisions, all that standing firm, all of it, is to be done in love. Love for God and love for others. Can you take everything that you do in life and can you trace it all back to your love for God and your love for others? The way Richard Pratt put it in his commentary is, love for God and neighbor was to motivate and govern everything they did. Consider what you do this week. Some of you might be pleased and encouraged. Some of you, if you take an honest look at how you spend your time, the most valuable thing that God has given you, if you take an honest look at your time, you might be shocked how much of it does not spring from a love for God and a love for others. The goal, right, is that all of our work is for the Lord. The goal is that everything that we do is out of love for God and love for others. That that's our primary motivation. Life is short. It is a vapor. We must make the most of every opportunity. That is the quality that Paul commends in these men, and he exhorts us here to do the same. To not waste our life to let all that you do be done in love. So that's the example that Paul puts before us. It's the exhortation, the command, the instruction that he gives us. So in conclusion, 
Are you a Christian today? Good. (laughs) And if you are a Christian, then here is God writing through his man Paul to you and to me. And he is saying to you and to me, Find these examples and follow them. And here is your instruction and here is your command. Follow it. Be watchful. Stand firm in your faith. Be strong and courageous. Hold your ground. Let everything that you do be done in love. You know what God has done for you. That fills you with gratitude, Christian. And you have a new desire, and it is to please God. Some of you haven't been Christians for so long that you remember the day when you had no interest in pleasing God. It was me, and then maybe me, and if I had time, I'd please me. And now you want to please God. Why do you want to please God? Why do you want to please God? Is it to get Him to love you? Is it to get Him pleased with you? Is it to get yourself saved? Why, Christian, do you want to please God? There's only one answer. The answer should be, however you say it, that you have come to know God's love for you. You've come to believe the gospel. And you know that you are a sinner. And you know what your sin deserves. And you know you can't stop. And you know there's nothing you could do. For long enough. To merit, deserve, earn God's favor. You're just hopeless and utterly lost if God doesn't do something. And the gospel is the good news that God has done something. He's made a way for us to be cleansed of our sin and to be forgiven of our sin, to be given new life, to live in harmony with Him and others forever. He sent Jesus to live that life that we try and live but cannot live perfectly. He sent Jesus not only to live but to die, to suffer the punishment that you and I deserve He didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. He put death to death. He conquered death so that we could have hope that we too could conquer death. How? By believing this gospel. By trusting Him. Now when you believe that, and every time I think about that, I mean really think about that, like in these opportunities here where I have no distractions and I'm thinking just about Jesus and what he has done for me, what happens in your heart and what happens in your soul? You're grateful. You're thankful. If you're not grateful, you are not a Christian today. If you're not overwhelmed with gratitude that motivates you to want to please God and love him, you are not a Christian yet.
But if you are, then you want to let everything that you do be done in love. You know you're in a battle and you, you're going to be alert and on guard and hold your position and stand firm in your faith and be strong and courageous for God's glory and for the good of others. What if you're not a Christian? What if you just realized you're not a Christian? Well, one way to describe your condition is that you are not at war with sin. You've made peace with sin. There's not really a war for you. You've made peace with sin. You just give into it. Or you excuse it. You indulge it. You don't really care. You've also made peace with the world. You just take what the world says is right. You take what the world says is pure. You take what the world says is true. You don't question its philosophies. You don't question its ideologies. You just swallow it. And in doing so, you reject the truth of God. You've made peace with sin. You've made peace with the world, which means that you're in the terrifying position of not being at peace with God. If you're not a believer, then you are not at peace with God. And the consequence of your peace with sin and your peace with the world is that you would Stay right where you are. At enmity with God. Forever and ever. Forever and ever. And that it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. But in a moment, at this very moment, you could have peace with God. You could believe and respond to the call of this gospel, said in so many ways in God's word. You should come to Jesus. You're weary, you're burdened, you're given up. You could find rest, that is peace. Trust Jesus and entrust yourself to Jesus and you'll be changed forever. Will you engage in the battle now and enjoy peace forever? Or will you settle for superficial peace now and suffer at war with God forever? Is the question. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, convict our hearts. For those of us who truly love you and have entrusted ourselves to you, God, we thank you. Help us to be strong and courageous. For those, God, who are here today who are deluded, who may think that they follow you but don't, I pray that you would open their eyes to see. And as you open your, their eyes to see 
their condition before you, that you would also cause them to see the gospel, that they would believe and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday, following the sermon, we respond by taking communion together. We do this in obedience to Jesus, to remember what he has accomplished for us. Let me read you from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim the Lord's death together. If you're here and you're a Christian, whether you're visiting or a regular part of this church, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you are a Christian, you've turned from your sin, you've placed your faith in Christ, you've committed yourself to him and to his body, which is the church. That means you're a committed member here or somewhere else, a church that preaches this same gospel. So let's take this together, peel back this first layer and grab this representative of bread, which is representative of the body. This is a symbol of the body of Christ. Let's take and eat this together. And now this cup, which is a symbol of the blood of Christ, let's take and drink this together. Will you please stand again with me? <clears throat> 